This afternoon I preach you the Word of God as it is summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 11 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Days 9 and 10, we considered what we confess about God the Father and our creation. Now we move to the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, and our redemption. We begin by first, next three Lord's Days, look at his names, and after that, his, his, the work that he did. So his names, his person, and his work. In Lord's Day 11, the church confesses, why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? Because he saves us from all our sins. And because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints, in themselves, or anywhere else, also believe in the only Savior, Jesus? No. Though they boast of him in words, they, in fact, deny the only Savior, Jesus. For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept this Savior must find in Him all that is necessary for their salvation. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the name Vincent is a name that means conqueror. I could have chosen other names, I think. I don't think there's anyone in our congregation named Vincent. But if you are named Vincent, your name means conqueror. Now if you meet a person named Vincent, you will not expect Vincent to go around conquering things, at least not any more than anyone else you meet. Even if Vincent's parents had wanted him to be a conqueror, giving him a name that means conqueror would not have guaranteed that outcome. Although parents may give names related to the circumstances of a child's birth, like a grandfather, so they might call their son Johnny the Third, or a child born near or on Christmas might be called Natal, or names, they might give names that they think may help their children growing up among their friends or peers. You can think of that famous song about a boy named Sue. Parents cannot reflect or determine their child's future by the name they give to their children. That's the main difference between the names that we as humans with limited knowledge give our children and the names that our sovereign God chooses for them. When God has a specific plan for a person and then he tells the parents to give that child a name that matches his plan, then the name he gives can be treated as revelation about the person and God's plan for his life. And that's why in Lord's Day 11, the question is worded that way. When we ask, we ask, why the Son of God is called Jesus? Or, or in other words, why did God give his incarnate Son the name Jesus? And the question will teach us, the answer to that will teach us very important things about who he is and what that means for us. And in this afternoon I preach to you the, the wonderful gospel revelation of the name Jesus under the theme, Jesus is the only and complete Savior. That's what we confess 
And we'll see that this statement of faith declares the Christian teaching that Jesus is the Savior. It distinguishes the Christian church. There's no other Savior. And it defines the Christian life. Jesus is my Savior, we say, as Christians. Well, that the Son of God would be named Jesus was announced both to Mary in Luke 1, verse 31, and to Joseph in Matthew 1, verse 21, by an angel of the Lord. And speaking to Joseph, the angel explained that the Son of God, born to Mary, would be called Jesus. And then comes the explanation, because he would save his people from their sins. The name Jesus relates directly to the work that he came to do and the work that he would certainly accomplish. And he is the only one who would accomplish these works. Other people give their children the names Jesus, but only God pointed to that child and said his name will be Jesus. And so Acts 4 verse 12 that we read as we walked in this afternoon, the display text, it states it very clearly. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christians who believe in Jesus believe that He made atonement for their sins. When we sing together Psalm 51 like we did in Psalm 65, we we sing that in the knowledge of, of Jesus. It's a simple statement that describes breathtaking grace. The Son of God who was with God in all eternity, who was present at the creation of the world, who was witness to the horrible rebellion of Adam and Eve in paradise and all the generations after them, that Son of God willingly entered the world that He had made to take on a human nature that He had created so that He might be able to be Jesus. Jesus, who had flesh and blood from his mother Mary. Jesus, who placed himself as an Israelite under the law. Jesus, who offered himself as a sin offering substitute for undeserving sinners. Jesus, who suffered under the burden of God's wrath against the sin of the whole world. Jesus, who was crucified, who died and was buried. Jesus, who was vindicated for his righteousness by being raised from the dead. Jesus, who in the flesh ascended into heaven and is still there in the flesh, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus, our mediator. Jesus, our advocate. Jesus, who has done what no other creature wants to do or can do, says Jesus in Mark 10, verses 37 to 38. Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. The Son of God is called Jesus because of the saving work He accomplished. And as Christians, we're emphatic that the name Jesus is exclusive. That's because we have a very, a very distinct definition of what salvation is. 
A definition that's focused on the root cause of all the misery of this life, which is sin. We acknowledge that you do not need Jesus if you just want to be saved from poverty or from oppression or from depression or from sickness or drudgery or any other temporary hardship in this life. But if you want to be saved from the eternal damnation that you deserve for even one of the smallest sins against the most high majesty of God, Jesus is the only Savior. And there is only one Savior because there is only one God and only one way to satisfy God's justice and pay the debt we owe. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 clarifies this oneness of our Savior. And this creedal statement then is very important for the church as it goes out into the world. That's the message we carry. It's the message of Jesus the Savior. The gospel, the the seed of the gospel that we sow is simple announcement of human sinfulness and Jesus the only and complete Savior for everyone who repents of their sins and trusts that Jesus paid for our sins when He died on the cross. And by stating our faith in Jesus as the only Savior, we're repeating what the Bible teaches about the perfect priest that God sent as a mediator who would continue forever. And we read that in Hebrews 7, verse 25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. And you can see in the, in the footnote, you can also read, he is able to save completely or at all times those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. He brings you into complete peace with God forever so you can look in the eyes of your holy creator and know that you have peace. He needs nothing from you in order to save you. And everything he receives from those he saves is what he has already first given to them. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus alone. Jesus completely. One holy God one perfect mediator, and one way to everlasting fellowship and perfect peace through the one faith that places trust for salvation in the one Savior, Jesus Christ. If you want to be innocent and holy in God's sight forever, we believe and confess that it's time to leave everything else you were depending on and join yourself to a faithful church where Jesus is truly worshipped and adored. For we see that this faith, this statement, Jesus is a statement that distinguishes the Christian church. There's no other Savior. And accepting the biblical teaching that Jesus is the Savior, the only and complete Savior, the Christian church unites in rejecting any kind of teaching that requires anything of anyone instead of or in addition to Jesus Christ for their salvation or their well-being. Notice that question 30 mentions salvation or well-being. Salvation 
is the word that points to deliverance from condemnation, from damnation. Well-being is a word that points to the new life that we have through Christ, which is a life filled with contentment and peace and joy and comfort and hope and satisfaction. Jesus, our Savior, provides us with both. He's not a Savior who only gives us part of what we need, getting us through the judgment of our holy God, but leaving us on our own to find our well-being. Jesus saves us from death, and He gives us a holy calling. He, is also, is not, he also is not a Savior who leaves part of our salvation or our well-being up to us. He isn't a cooperating Savior who fills in the gaps missing in your righteousness. We don't need to spend our lives seeking, looking for the other half of our salvation or well-being from another source. And we say whether that be the saints, ourselves, or anywhere else. As exemplary as the excellent Christians in the past whom the Romanists have distinguished with the title saints, as, as excellent as they were, whether they be Jesus' mother or the apostles or the extraordinary men and women who gave their lives for God and for their neighbor or the most brilliant theologians of the past or, or the men and women who came to a sudden end in their different pro professions, the, the so-called patron saints. Yes, as faithful as these men and women may have been, they are unable to improve your standing before God or your neighbor. Not only are they sinners themselves, but they did not give their lives for you. And even if they could see and, and know you, they would never love you as much as Jesus does. And so their intercession if that, that's imagined on your behalf, it's, it's completely unnecessary when you have Jesus. The faithful church praises the Lord for the examples of all those who have gone before us. We're humbled to read of, of the excellent Christians and, and, and we could see how much more pious and how pleasing to God their lives were compared to ours. But we see such men and women as colleagues responding to Jesus' saving grace like we want to and not as mediators that help us get to God or Jesus. Even if their good works outweighed their sinful thoughts, the wages of sin remains death, and no mere creature can satisfy God's justice. And that's also the problem of seeking our salvation or well-being in ourselves. It seems like a well, it's a weird way of, of talking or a strange way of talking, but it's a way of, of saying that, uh, it's a way of talking about people who believe they have a role to play in their own salvation. And that a sinner that God has chosen to save can successfully resist God's will and still be condemned. Any, any who think like that end up putting their salvation, making it dependent on something they do. And people who seek their salvation in themselves teach that Jesus' work only becomes effective for us 
if we first accept him as our Savior. And so, again, they put the responsibility for salvation on people to make the right decision. Well, this sin of making ourselves the object of our faith, instead of trusting completely in Jesus, the only and complete Savior, that, that sin sneaks into our lives in a, in, a, in a variety of subtle ways. While on the one hand, we might piously and, and rightly uh, condemn the explicit teaching that a person must do more good works than bad works to enter into heaven. That's what we've always been brought up with and we know that's wrong. At the same time, we often do the same thing when we make our should-do list a condition for entering heaven. I think we've all done that. We, we might think in our minds, maybe not even say it, we might, we might say or think things like, I should read the Bible and pray more if I want to get to heaven. Instead of saying, I'm so thankful that Jesus has brought me into heaven through his blood by grace alone, that I find I am constantly hungering and thirsting for more righteousness, to learn more about him, to talk with him in prayer, to love my neighbor. Or we might say things like, there is no way that God could love a person like me. Or I've just done too many sinful things in the past. Instead of saying, I believe in Jesus. Jesus who came to save sinners like me. Jesus who offered up to God the righteousness that pleases him. And he did that for me. He did that in my place. Well, by confessing Jesus as our Savior, we make Jesus the object of our faith instead of ourselves. And that process is, is actually very closely connected to obeying the first commandment. No matter how confident you may be in being able to finally get it right, if you try enough times. There's a, a quote here. It's good. It's relevant. It's also good to remember. It's a quote from Timothy Keller. The Lord, in His wisdom, recently took, promoted Timothy Keller to, to glory. It was just this past week. But he has this statement. It's quite well known. He says, strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. You can have strong faith in yourself and your ability to do that, but it won't get you to God. Much better is faith in a strong branch. Well, Christians unite in their common rejection of giving credit to any person for their salvation or well-being. And there's a reason that Paul, as he's considering this in Philippians chapter 3, he, he considered and he explained it to us and the Holy Spirit gave us the words that says everything is rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness, the worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now Paul, the apostle, we know in his days of 
Judaism, he was a very pious person. In fact, he was a leading pious person. And, and all that, he said, all that that set him apart from everyone else, all that gave glory to him, he said, it's all garbage, it's nothing. And the message for us is clear. Our piety, our prayers, our request to Jesus to help us overcome something, our kindness to our neighbor, the number of mission trips we've been on, none of these things contribute a single thing to our salvation because it is completely in Jesus. It's His righteousness alone. Salvation is a gift of grace given to us through Jesus in spite of our sins and failures, without regard to our piety. Now we may recognize that some people walk more closely with God than others. Some have a higher sense of morality. Some enjoy more of the gifts of fellowship with God as a result of this. But such holy people that we see, and we may have had the privilege of meeting some of these very holy people while they're in their holiness. They are not resting on themselves in any way. Holy people do not rest on God any less than all the others around them. We are either saved by Jesus completely or we are not saved at all. There is no other Savior. And as churches who confess that Jesus is our complete Savior, we reject any teaching that allows for salvation without a, a complete surrender of one's will to God's grace. A complete surrender of, of all the works in your life to say, none of those make me stand apart in God's sight. that promise of forgiveness. It's a free gift for those who hate their sins and love Jesus, who abandon their works and put all their hope in Jesus. And that forgiveness it is a gift. It cannot be expected by people who are unwilling to change because they love their sins more than God or they love their works more than Jesus. And so we need to watch out for the untrue consolation to a person persisting in their sins that they'll be fine because of Jesus. Sometimes we hear that. People, they talk about their struggles and, and the things that they're facing and the sins they've committed and we want to say something. We say, it's okay. It's okay. Jesus is a, a Savior. It's true He is a Savior. But unless a person submits to Jesus in confession of the sins they truly hate, they are not fine. In fact, they are not even Christian. As we confess our sins, we follow it with the confession, yet Jesus is my Savior. And our catechism comes across very strongly when it says that people who seek their salvation or well-being in saints in themselves or anywhere else, do not believe in the only Savior, Jesus. Although we might think we're worshiping Jesus, we may even boast of Him in our words, we are in fact denying the only Savior if He is not the only and complete Savior. 
Paul talks about another gospel. We might talk about people who worship another Jesus who is a partial Savior. Well, the Jesus who is revealed in Scripture as the only Savior is a complete Savior. There's nothing we need to do to add to His work but submit, but accept, but receive Him and Him alone. It's Jesus, not Jesus plus. And so that defines our Christian life. When we state that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world to save sinners, just confessing that and believing that with your heart and and living that way, that very statement of faith is what makes us share in His saving work. Every Sunday we say, I believe in Jesus. We're saying, I believe that every sin I confess and repent from is paid for by His death so that I will never be punished for them. And I may live in everlasting fellowship with God the Father through God the Holy Spirit. The consequence of making this statement is that we're always looking for the sins in our lives because we hate them. We're also always striving for repentance so that we may experience the reconciliation with God that Jesus obtained. We're eager to to live a holy life. And here's where we might look at those Christians in the past who who give great examples of of sacrifice and, and commitment to Jesus. Well, believing in Jesus is desiring to more fully enjoy the fellowship with God that Jesus obtained for us. That's what He saved us for. Believing in Jesus is believing that He saved us from eternal condemnation so that we might live a holy life in joyful fellowship with God. Saying, I believe in Jesus, it's an an action word. It it brings us in to, to look at our lives. Praising Jesus as our Savior in our creeds includes the act of confessing our sins so that we can receive the full benefits of Christ's work. Now, we don't list our sins in prayer to give glory to the devil. We don't, when we pray, and we're all taught that when we pray to be very specific in listing the, the sins that we've, we've committed, we don't do that because we have an odd fixation with sorrow and fear. We do that because God told us to confess our sins so that we might see the depth of His grace. We confess our sins in the context of saying Jesus is my Savior. 1 John 1 verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, Jesus, the high priest, and the sacrifice is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blank check of payment has been made before we begin to pray to God and confess our sins. All that we need to do is go through our lives to to tell the Lord, to, to explain to ourselves and to show ourselves as well what sins it is that we have nailed to the cross. What are we presenting? How are we entrusting ourselves completely to Him? In the Old Testament, the priest would put his hands on the sacrificial animal 
to transfer the guilt of the people onto that sacrifice. And we can imagine him bringing the sacrifice. It's going to be paid for, guaranteed. It's taken care of. He just is going to confess the sins upon the animal. And we can imagine him looking up to you and saying, what would you like to have erased from your record? What do you want me to scrub out of the sight of God? What sinful thoughts do you confess? Which sinful desires would you have God remove from the record? Which deeds? It's paid for. Confess them. You can imagine another picture. Maybe you can imagine a junk collector coming to your house. and He's got his big truck and his big trailer. And he asks you, what would you have me remove? It's all paid for. I'll take away whatever you don't want there anymore. Anything that hinders your Christian life. All our Lord Jesus, our Savior, He says, come to me. I've died on a cross for your sins. Your, your old nature can be nailed to the cross with me. And so he, he calls us to Him. He calls us to be honest with Him about who we are. And that's what confessing our sins in prayer is. It's listing everything that we want to be removed from our lives in Christ so that we may live more fully in our redeemed life. It's a consequence of saying Jesus. But when we confess Jesus as Savior, we receive those benefits of this grace. Not only when we confess our sins, and that's overwhelming, we see the depth of, of His grace, but also as we experience how that confession is it results in the lifting of his hands. God says, if you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just, just to remove it all. You could think, think of Psalm 32 where he says, how that hand of God weighed upon me until I confessed my sins and it was a new beginning. And so we experience the benefits and so we can seek our well-being from Christ. And as we experience the lifting of God's hand, it, it gives us that desire to live in that new life, to fight against our sins and true repentance. The Christian life, the Christian life of those who say Jesus is Savior, it's defined by that constant double refrain. Jesus did not do only a half job when he came, but he completely restored me to peace with God. Jesus didn't only die to pay for my sins, but he also rose again to restore me with fellowship to God, uh, to fellowship with God in a new life. And that's why after I have seen sins and temptations in my life and confessed them to God and threw them on that garbage collector, the, the the junk truck that came to take away it all, I also want to fight against those sins. I want to fight against those temptations. And after declaring to the woman who was caught in adultery, remember that in John 8, after he declared to that woman that he did not condemn her, Jesus added the famous words. He said, go, and from now on, sin no more. That's repentance. It's that changing of the heart 
and the changing of the mind that leads to a change of choices and words and desires and actions that flow from the forgiveness we already have. And brothers and sisters, you know very well what a relief and what a joy and how it, what a restoration in our relationships is enjoyed by those who live honestly before God in Jesus, repenting of their sins. It's a testimony of the power of the Holy Spirit, a blessing from Jesus. And so the statement, Jesus or Savior, becomes a, a song that fills us with hope and a longing for a godly life. It's understandable why several contemporary hymns have this name, Jesus, as a repeated refrain. Brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus told His people to remain, to abide in Him. And the Holy Spirit exhorts us to continue to live in Him. And when you are sure in your mind that His blood and His righteousness are sufficient for Him to enter into the glory of the Father, then you know for sure that they are sufficient for you who belong to Him in true faith. Jesus is our Savior. The gospel truth we declare includes distinguishing ourselves from those who depend on the rubbish of human works and praising the Lord for our salvation in Christ every day. Go from here in the name of Jesus, forgiven, saved, and eager to live in holiness. Amen. We'll now stand if you